You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. Once again, um, in our parable this week, our uh, reading from the Gospel, Luke wants to make sure that we understand the point of the parable before he even recounts Jesus telling his story. Just like last week where he told the parable, um, and before the parable even began, he said that he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart, and then they, it, Luke told the parable that Jesus told. This week he says he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt which makes it really clear what the first plain meaning of the text is, is that it is this reminder that no one is justified before God by an account of their works, by what they have done, by how well they keep the law. The Pharisee who is in this parable is not an actual person who comes and prays like this. Jesus is using him as an example. But of course, he is speaking to people who thought and acted in some ways like this. People who went up to the temple in this moment where they're hoping to have this encounter with God, this moment where they're going to pray, and his prayer is primarily a recounting of his own deeds and what he has done. He comes up um, and he says in his prayer that I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's recounting the deeds of the law that he has kept. In fact, he is making sure that God knows that he has gone above and beyond what is required of him. There were fasts required on certain days, days of atonement in the law, but other fasts were optional. And this Pharisee is saying, I fast twice every week. I do far more than is required of me. I'm going beyond that. And I tithe out of all that I get. There were instructions in the law about certain things that need to be tithed upon. And the Pharisee here is either saying, I actually keep all of the tithes that are recounted in the Old Testament, or it might be kind of like his idea of fasting twice every week, where he's saying, I'm going beyond the tithes. I'm not just tithing of those things that are required of me. I'm tithing of everything. I'm going beyond the basics, doing everything that I should. And I am keeping your law. And to our ears in the church that we are in, um, that is probably a hard thing to believe and understand. Most of us have probably grown up hearing of the law as something that more or less points to the fact that we cannot attain to the standards that God has given us, that we cannot keep up um, with what God has told us to do. But this Pharisee would have been familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, verse 11 where it says, This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. The predominant understanding of the time was that the law was something that it was possible to keep. It was possible to keep the law and be counted righteous. And actually, Jesus doesn't tell the Pharisee that this is untrue. 
He doesn't tell us that this is untrue. Jesus doesn't find fault in his behavior, in his keeping of the law, in the things that he has done. What he finds fault in is not in those activities that are outside what he has done. He finds fault in his heart. Because though he has kept the form of the law, the shape of it, he has done the things that are required of him, he has not understood the core of the, of the law. He has not followed, as Jesus interpreted, the commands to love God and to love others. Because even as he comes to God in this prayer, you see what is really deeply in his heart is pride. There is pride at his own accomplishments. In the youth group this morning, we were talking about the story of the Red Sea and about how this is one of the defining stories of Israel, the story that they're supposed to tell over and over again about what God has done for them, about how God has saved them when they had no ability to save themselves. And this Pharisee is, even though he surely keeps the Passover and tells that story every year, and he tells it just how they're supposed to tell it, has missed the point and is coming instead and is talking to God about all that he has done instead of talking to God about what God has done and about God's salvation. He's missed the point, and he's come with pride in his heart, and he's no longer coming with thanksgiving to God truly for his own salvation, but just thanksgiving that he's better than everyone else. And Jesus sees and knows men like this around him, who see all that they have done, and they treat others with contempt. And as so often happens in the parables of Jesus, he puts this Pharisee in contrast with another man, with the tax collector, with one who is despised by his people, one whom no one would have expected to be righteous before God, not one who is holy and pure and setting himself apart, but one who is mixing with Gentile and Jew alike, one who is barely feels clean enough to even come into the temple. You see that in the way that he comes and he stands far off probably from the Pharisee, the idea being that I'm not even going to contaminate this holy man who is here in the temple with me, with my presence, by coming too close to him. Instead, I will stand off, and instead of standing in a posture where he's looking up to heaven, which would be a normal posture of prayer at the time, he bows his head because he is just feeling so unworthy of even being in the presence of God, and he says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And the Greek word here is actually not the word that is usually used for mercy throughout the New Testament. We oftentimes think of mercy, uh, one of the ways that we talk about and define it is basically not getting what you deserve. But there's actually a more powerful sense to the word in this particular case. The word that is translated here in in our reading as be merciful to me, is actually the same word that it talks about in Hebrews when Jesus says that he is going to be an atonement, that he is going to be, sometimes we hear the word propitiation, that basically the wrath of God that is deserved upon humanity is going to be covered by the blood of Jesus, and that is why God's wrath will not be poured out upon them. And that's essentially not, of course, knowing about the sacrifice of Jesus, but that is what this tax collector in the story is going up and asking about. He's coming up and he's saying, God, your wrath upon me is deserved. And my only hope is that you will cover that yourself. I cannot offer some sort of way to appease the wrath of God. 
I cannot give you my own righteousness and say that this is what has kept me from falling underneath the wrath of God. Instead, my only hope is that you will do that yourself, that you will take away your own wrath, that you will hold off judgment upon me. And Jesus tells all those who are gathered as he tells this story, that this is the one who is justified before God. Justified is a word we hear often in the letters of Paul. It's that legal term, the one who is set right, the one who, who is now in, has, has been declared not guilty, who is standing before the judge and is, has had their, their bill wiped away, the one that can stand and say that I am in a right relationship now with the one with whom I had a debt previously. And Jesus uses it here and he says, This is the one who is actually in the right relationship with God. This is the heart of the gospel that we hear over and over again. That the gospel says that we cannot set things right with God by our own works. We cannot by our own deeds take away the wrath of God. Our only hope is for God's grace and his mercy. For him to take away the wrath himself and to bring us into a right relationship with him because of his mighty power, because we can't do it. And I know most of you here have heard me preach a few times, and so you know this message. You've heard this over and over again. You know this in your minds. I doubt there are many of you who think that you can be justified before God by your acts and by what you have done. And so when we hear a parable like this that is presenting and reminding us of the gospel. I think one of the questions that naturally arises was, well, then what does this mean for me? I already believe it. Is it just being telling me something that I already believe, reminding me of something that I already know? That in itself is useful because we are forgetful people. But I believe that there's more in here for us if we look at this a little bit more deeply and we examine ourselves a little bit more deeply because I think that there is this tendency that even though we know in our minds that we cannot be justified by our works to be continually drawn into this desire to be worthy before we come to God. We want by our habits, by our disciplines, by the things we do or the things that we don't do, to make ourselves clean. And I think we are drawn to this over and over again in our hearts, and we have to be reminded over and over again that this is not the way to a right relationship with God. I saw this in myself a little bit after my 41st birthday. I went through my 40th birthday just fine, no midlife crisis, It actually probably helped that I had just recently changed careers and moved into a new city, and so I kind of had the sense of movement in my life. Um, I think I would have encountered that year a little bit differently if I had still been teaching community college. But because I was here with you all and receiving the great welcome of Christ our hope, I felt like it was obvious that God was working in my life, and I, I felt okay. And then 41 came, and it wasn't really the birthday exactly, but I was just thinking through things that I needed to do for to be healthy, I was getting frustrated with my own body, and I was like, one of the things that I need to do is find a way to work out more regularly. 
And I looked at options, and I looked at gyms that were nearby, and I looked at how much gyms cost nearby, and I said, I'm not sure if I can do that. Um, so what can I do where I can spend money once and maybe make an investment for a long term? And I, of course, if you know me at all, what happens in situations like this is that I go into full research mode. And I'm good at research, and I can like scan and make decisions. I Google really well. Um, it's a skill that one learns. And actually, I learned this as a teacher. It is not a skill that comes to everybody. Um, it actually has to be a learned skill. Um, so I decided and settled on that what would be give me a good full-body workout for a reasonable price would be a rowing machine. And so I scoured the internet for used rowing machines. And let me tell you what, Fort Collins Craigslist, Craigslist is disappointing. Um, new rowing machines cost like $1,000 if you get the really good one. The used ones that are like out of date in Fort Collins, people wanted $850 for them. I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. And so I found one that was being sold at a much lower price in Nebraska. <laughs> So I drove out to Nebraska, Scott's Bluff. It wasn't super far away. It was like a two-hour drive. Um, and I bought a used rowing machine um, and came back and was determined that I was going to use this to change my routines and my patterns to be more healthy. So here is my design in my mind of what I'm going to do. I'm going to start getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning before my kids wake up so that I have time. And I'm going to row before they wake up. And then I'm going to pray before they wake up. And then when they come in, I will cook them breakfast. I promised my wife that if we used eggs every morning, we could one day get chickens. Um, this, is, this is what midlife crisis looks like for me. So I'm going to be healthy, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to eventually get chickens. Um, and honestly, things went really well for a few weeks. Not the chickens yet. That's long term. Um, but, but things went really well for a few weeks. Um, and I was getting up early in the morning before my family, and it actually was delightful. It was good for me. It is good for me. Um, the was obviously tells you that something's coming here. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and the only downside is that at the end of the day, I was really tired, but actually that was good too, because I was using my time better. Where I would normally like waste time in the evenings, I was just going to bed, because I was just too tired to do anything else. Um, and it went really well for two or three weeks. And then I just had a week where um, I just really struggled, where I had a lot of emotional, difficult things come up in my life, um, some related to uh, training that I was going through, some that was encountered with my family and spending time with my family that was just hard, um, and some that was just other stuff that was going on. I had some really full weeks. And I had a week where I didn't do that. I didn't get up. And part of my reaction in all of this, even though I know better, is to feel like, well, now I've messed up. Where I'm not worthy. I wanted to change my habits, to be like men who I know, who get up early, who work out, who pray. I want that to be part of who I am. And yet there's a moment that I have where I, I fail. And my inclination in that failure, my first inclination is actually to dive into shame and guilt 
and to feel like I can no longer, because I've tried to do this thing and I've failed, that I cannot come before God, really. And I know better. I know better than that. And yet I know that this is a story that probably for many of you is all too familiar. That you have looked for ways to change your habits, to change your life, to set things up, to order your life, to do all the right things, uh, to be people who uh, not perhaps fast twice a week, but in our church it would be people who pray every day for long periods of time, people who read lots of scripture every day, people who come to church and never miss. The tithing is probably still accurate. People who are faithful with their money. And we look at all of these things and we go, if I can do those things, then I'm sure that that is how I will receive God's blessing upon me. That that is what I need to do to be right with God. And those things are not bad. They are not bad. It is good to pursue disciplines that lead us into a deeper relationship with God because the practices and rhythms of our life absolutely have an impact on the quality of our relationship with God. If I don't talk to my wife, things don't do so well in our relationship. If I don't talk to God, things are not going to do so well in our relationship. But there is this subtle shift that happens in our minds over and over again that I have seen far too many times where we say, we go from saying, I know that these things are good to I am ashamed and I will not come to my father unless I do these things. And that is a lie. The doctrine of grace that is taught here, that our works cannot justify us, This is not a reason not to to draw near to our Father, not to seek out the spiritual disciplines. It's actually a reason to be able to do them with hope. Because if you are counting on those disciplines as being what draws you to God, then you will fall flat and fail. Most likely. And you will hide from Him. But when you remember that God has mercy, that he covers up your sins by his own deeds, by what he has done on the cross, that over and over again we come and cry out to him for mercy. And Jesus says that is how you are justified before God. Then we can seek after those things that we know are healthy and good, And when we fail, we can go again because there's mercy and there's grace. Our salvation does not depend upon our ability to be faithful. It depends on God's faithfulness and his mercy. And all we have to do is come to him and cry out for mercy again and again and again and again. And he never gets tired of his children coming to him and asking him for mercy where there's a few of you where this is actually not your story. There's a few of you who actually really are good at doing the things that you decide are going to be the best for you. That can hold to your routine without fail for year in and year out. 
and I am sometimes jealous of you. But there is danger in that too. Because you can start to look at your routine as your salvation. You can begin to look at other people who struggle and look upon them with contempt, as the Pharisee did. To look at them and say, why don't you just do the things that you're supposed to be doing? If you prayed for an hour every morning, then you would be closer to God. You'd be right with Him. Do it. So if you are someone who is able to stick to these routines, who shows admirable self-discipline, who is able to discipline your body and your mind, remember still that this is not what justifies you before God. And it does not give you license to look upon your brothers and sisters with contempt as if somehow they are not as good as you. Because the gospel is that all of us come before God needing mercy. All of us come before God needing to come to Him and say, You alone can save me. My salvation is in what you have done, not in what I have done. And that doesn't matter how well accomplished you are, how disciplined you are. It is still true. You come to God in need of mercy. And this can be displayed in many ways in our lives. But in this story that Jesus tells, one of the things that he's pointing out in particular is the way that this is evidenced in the way that we pray. One commenter on this passage points out to the fact that it says two men went up to the temple to pray at the beginning of the passage. And the way that he phrases it is only one of them did. The Pharisee, with his recounting his deeds, even though he is addressing God, supposedly, is not really praying. He's not really coming to God in conversation. He's not really going to God in the way that God has, on the terms that God has set, in the way that God has, has said, this is how you come to me. Trusting in God's mercy, in God's deliverance, in God's salvation. It is the tax collector who comes up and prays in truth when he says, God, have mercy upon me, who doesn't try to clean himself up before he comes to God. Because this also happens so much in the lives of Christians. I hear it so many times that people want to do the right things before they go to God. They know that they have fallen into sin and they want to stop before they go to God and ask for mercy, because they feel like, well, I don't deserve to ask for mercy if I'm still mired in this mess. I need to kind of get myself out a little bit, at least. Like, I know that I can't quite get myself out of the mud pit, but I've at least got to find some place where my feet can feel the ground before I can go ask God to lift me the rest of the way out. And it doesn't work like that. Prayer does not work like that. God invites us to come before him in all of our mess, in all of the sin that we are mired in, in all of the difficulties of the circumstances we are mired in, and he says, come to me as you are and ask for mercy. Bring your entire self to me. Be honest before me. Don't hide from me. I see it anyway. Why are you pretending that you have to make yourself righteous before you can come before me? I already know 
when I called you to myself, in that moment where you chose to follow after Jesus, in that moment of your baptism that you look back on and remember where God made you part of his family, this is incredible to me. Every time I think of it, God already knew not only what you had done up to that point, the sins that he was forgiving you in that moment, he knew all that you would do, and he still called you to himself. Can you get your mind around that? Would you possibly call yourself to follow after God if you knew all the mistakes that you would make in your life? I think there are very few of us who would count ourselves worthy to be called. If we could look and know the whole picture, but God looked and knew the whole picture and he said, I will pay for it all. I will show mercy. I will cover over your sins with my own blood so that you may know the depths of my love. You may know how great is my power to save. You may understand that I am a God who always shows mercy, that I do not choose the strong or the righteous, but I choose the sinner and I make them righteous. That what I am about is bringing people back from the dead. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses, and I will bring you back. And when you can understand the depth of your sin and understand the heights of my mercy, and how much greater is my mercy than your sin, only then will you begin to understand who I really am. So this is the call that we have and how we can live as God's people is to remember that we cannot justify ourselves, not just in that moment of our entrance to relationship with him, but in every moment of our lives, we once again, over and over again, have to fall upon God and ask for mercy. We have no right for pride in our accomplishments and our deeds and what we have done and the disciplines that we have gained because still we are just as desperately in need of mercy. And because of that, we can have love for others. We can follow the command of Jesus to humble ourselves. Because we know that the one who humbles himself before God will be exalted and lifted up following in the way of Jesus, who though he was equal with God, did not consider that something to be grasped and held on to, but gave himself up, becoming a servant for our sake. I invite you in particular today, as we move through the service, we obviously will go to, we'll have a time of confession and we have the prayers of the people. And I invite you to be a people who pray as the tax collector prayed. Who are not afraid of your image, of how you're going to look, of saying the right things, of praying with the right beautiful words to make yourself seem worthy before God and before men but who simply cry out and ask for God's mercy. 
Bring the cries of your heart before him. And trust him. Because he is good. And his mercy endures forever. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.